No. I'm not worried at all. I rely on God, Allah. On behalf of the Lifehack team, thank you for watching this video. And for more clips and beneficial content, please subscribe to the Lifehack channel, your number one source for personal Islamic development. Bismillah, alhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Today's guest is an activist. Uh, he is a published author. He's a writer. He is someone who has an amazing life story where he was unjustly imprisoned. Uh, he was tortured, but his human spirit, his drive allowed him to uh, utilize all those experiences and turn it into something positive. And day in and day out, he tries to make the lives of people around him much better. And his story is so powerful that actually um, Marvel and Disney have come together to make a special superhero uh, inspired by him. Uh, all those statements are true, and I'll get let you guess which statement isn't true. But our guest today is Muazzam Beg. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. Welcome to the podcast, Brother Muazzam. Uh, wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, Brother Said, and uh, my pleasure and honor to be speaking to you uh, this evening here from the UK. And, I'm, and uh, I look forward to a robust and in interesting discussion, inshallah. Uh, we appreciate uh, you being with us today. I know you are really busy and uh, you're actually uh, somebody that I've been wanting to speak to for a while. And uh, we were originally supposed to speak a few weeks ago and then the world changed. And so I think um, there are certain things that we just have to address because the world is different. And I wanted to start off, uh, you know, talking about uh, a lot of the personal experiences that you had and extrapolate that as lessons for us. And uh, I think we, we need to really address some of those major world events that have occurred because uh, when you hear the term Taliban, especially here in the West, it conjures images of this nefarious evil group that um, are hated, right? They're essentially hated by many Western countries. If you talk to even many Muslims, when they talk about them, they talk to, uh, about them with a disdain. And it almost seems like anybody who speaks of them even slightly positively, that could be considered positively, they have to give a disclaimer. And that disclaimer is, hey, listen, I'm for women's rights. I'm against terrorism, against like, so you have to give this list of um, you know, this long disclaimer before you even speak about them in any type of positive light. And uh, I would say that if you had a news report of an American soldier, uh, you know, cutting off a hundred heads of Taliban people, uh, people wouldn't even blink. They wouldn't even blink on that. So how did such a hated group uh in a in the in largely a peaceful way, take over an entire country uh, against a country, a force that has probably the largest, most powerful military in history, and subject. So that's probably objectively and subjectively one of the you could say portrayed as being the most lauded and chivalrous occupiers uh, in human history. How were they able to take over? In, in in such you could say um, a peaceful way, a smooth way, with 
you know, this is not how this country was occupied in the first place. So how did this happen, right? Because it's bewildering people. There are many comments about uh, about that and conspiracy theories. How, in your estimation, you having firsthand knowledge uh, of both the Taliban, Afghanistan, and, uh, you know, the American, uh, you know, army experience with them, actually. It's a very important question. Let me begin just by the end. So just a few days ago, as, as we all know, a terrible attack took place at Kabul airport and one of the, um, uh, the hotels in which uh, now it's reported uh, approximately 190 people were killed. That's a shocking number. Um, amongst those people, the headlines said were 13 U.S. Marines. Those were the headlines. In some places, it didn't even mention that Afghans were killed in the headline. The other thing that's not mentioned, of course, um, the Taliban soldiers remained at their posts steadfast. And uh, their post, their job was to help to guard the outer perimeter of the United States um, soldiers and the refugees, therefore, they're going in. They were killed, and there's not a mention of those 28 Afghan lives. So you have to ask yourself why. These guys essentially, their enemies would say, ISIS would say, and have said, by the way, that these 28 people died protecting the Americans. And in the Western media, there's not a simple, single mention of the humanity of these guys. Uh, in fact, uh, it seems not to exist, seems to be non-existent in its entirety. Uh, I, I think the, the other the other question, the other part of the question that you asked was that how did the Taliban come to capture Afghanistan in such a contrast to how the US and its allies took over? I, I was there. I was physically present when the US invasion began of Afghanistan. My house uh, was in Kabul. I lived there with my family. We were actually involved in building a school for girls and, and it was successful, a girls school. Uh, run by Muslims in Afghanistan under the Taliban. So it was extremely violent. They used uh, vacuum bombs, cluster bombs, smart bombs, 15,000 uh, pound daisy cutter bombs. You'd imagine a bomb that weighs 15,000 pounds for a moment. Uh, and that was just before, that was before the occupation forces came in. Then they came in, started to use drone strikes uh, and surgical, uh, uh, they were using Tomahawk cruise missiles. I was there, I saw the missiles, I saw the bombs fall from the B-52s. Uh, so it's, it, it wasn't, it, it was one of the most brutal, uh, most, uh, the most ordinance, most bombing taken place in our lifetimes that we've ever seen in the country. The reason why the Taliban came so quickly to power is, is a series of, of, of blunders by the United States of America. First of all, you're an occupying force. The last superpower to occupy this force uh, is called the Soviet Union, and they were essentially defeated, not because of the numbers, more Afghans died than, than any Soviets, but it was the will to fight. The will to fight an occupier uh, was something that essentially in, Esla in, in Islamic law, in international law, and in the law of the jungle, you have the right to defend yourself from anybody who wishes to come and take your home. It's a simple concept, and most Afghans, they got it. The ones who didn't get it, the ones who were uh, paid, warlords often uh, involved in war crimes themselves, vicious war crimes. Um, and as a result of that, uh, people knew they didn't trust these warlords. And these warlords got together, eventually became part of the 
a US-backed government and people didn't trust them. And one of the things people will never tell you, you probably have not even heard this, one of the reasons why the Taliban was so successful is because unlike the majority of developed nations, Afghanistan, most people are, live in rural areas. Uh, only the minority, the minority of the country live in the cities like Kabul. So in these rural areas, the Taliban controlled anyway. They always have, right since 2003, four, mm. five, six. They just, Taliban just retreated to these areas. And there what they did is that they had very simple, effective, unadulterated, uncorrupt, uncorrupt, systems of uh, uh, settling disputes, uh, Sharia courts. The, the term Sharia is, is quite uh, toxic in the West, but that's why the Taliban came to power yes. because in their court, they settled disputes very quickly. People, they were uh, unbureaucratic. You didn't have to pay large bribes to get an adjudication as you did have to in the US-backed uh, Afghan government courts. In fact, a, a, a report by a Norwegian NGO in 2000, I think, 14, 15, actually said that the Taliban had, quote unquote, weaponized justice, weaponized justice um, by uh, giving adjudication in these courts that yeah. were favorable to people where they didn't have to pay Rashawi, Rish, uh, um, uh, uh, bribes. And there were numerous cases of go Afghan government officials uh, going to Taliban courts to have their cases resolved. So that told you the level of corruption that existed within the government and the opposite amongst the Taliban's courts. That's why if people trust you to adjudicate in their disputes, then why would they fight you? Hmm. You know, you've said uh, uh, a lot of doses of truth, and I want to just unpack um, some of these uh, things that you've mentioned so that we can get a, even a deeper understanding. So, uh, you know, one could argue that, okay, for the United States to come in and uh, promote uh, their agenda, which uh, is supposedly an alliance with altruistic principles that the West has, that by virtue alone of their principles of trying to spread freedom and democracy and, you know, women's rights, by that virtue alone, they should have uh, a really strong foothold. Like the Taliban should have a, an incredibly hard time getting people to give up their freedoms, giving getting people to give up uh, all these liberties. Yet how come... Uh, they were able to just then on an ideological level now, right? On an ideological level, it seems like you have to have an acceptance by great portions of the populations. You know, you, you just can't, if the majority of people are against what you have to say, why would people uh, accept a brutal rule, uh, having their rights taken away, uh, having uh, to be subject to all sorts of, like nightmarish, punitive, corporal punishments, why would they want the Taliban to come into power when uh, the Americans who are supposedly promoting freedom and all of these different things, right, uh, uh, you know, uh, have worked 20 years to establish that and spent, you know, trillions of dollars to do that. So why would, why, why would they want to accept such a, a, a brutal rule? Because just based on like an ideological 
level. Like, you know, doesn't a human being want more freedom? They want more rights. They don't want to be on the, the, you know, oppressed and subject to needless corporal punishments. So how how would you, uh, you know, elucidate on that? So one of the things that we need to understand, first of all, as we see now the, the, the images of tens of thousands of uh, Afghans fleeing uh, through Kabul airport, trying to get over to the West. It's as if um, the mm. past 20 years didn't happen. There have been uh, waves mm. of Afghan refugees fleeing uh, that country under the US occupation. Uh, the refugee camps in Greece, in the Isles of Lesbos, and elsewhere crossing the Aegean and the Mediterranean, sometimes drowning uh, just to get to Europe, uh, include thousands of Afghans. And that was when the Americans were in complete control when their government and the government that they wanted was in charge, yet people were still fleeing. And if you look at the numbers of people that fled Mm -hmm. over that period of time, I would say that they are greater than than the the numbers that left uh, uh, Kabul uh, it, although it was all in one concentrated period. So you'd ask, why are they all fleeing Kabul? And, and here's a question. I, I think mm. my belief is that um, hard right, uh, and even some on the left, to be honest with you, uh, politicians and media have been fueling this. Many Afghans mm. want to leave to live a better life, and they have the right to do that. But to say they're only doing it because of the Taliban is actually disingenuous. Uh, the reason why that is, is because mm. of this. The Taliban released mm. uh, hundreds of prisoners from the Af- Afghan National Army that they were holding, including those who were responsible for killing Taliban soldiers, including those who were seeking execution against Taliban members. The Taliban has not only given them an amnesty, a general amnesty, but has released them from prison. Now, if they have done that, then surely somebody who's killed Afghan Taliban is far uh, is not as bad as somebody who translated for the Americans. Yet we are told these translators mm. are facing such a threat. They must run onto airplanes and risk being blown off that aircraft as it flies into the air. Uh, and that simply doesn't hold true mm. to what the Taliban have said and done uh, uh, in, in this regard. So what we've got to ask is that who has fueled this debacle, this chaos at the airports? It is the United States government and other Western nations and their warmongering media who repeatedly have said that it's going to be uh, terror, it's going to be death, it's going to be destruction, people are being raped, people are being tortured, people are being murdered. Uh, And many of these stories have turned out actually to be fake. Some are coming from places like Mm. India, Others are being pushed in the United States, in America, in Canada, in Australia, and in Great Britain. And the reason obviously is this. As Lord Dannett, the former head of the British Army, uh, has recently said that this is a defeat for the forces of the West. It's a defeat. It, it's a, uh, whichever way you want to look at it. Just like Vietnam was a defeat, uh, and it wasn't judged by the numbers of dead. There were nearly over a million Vietnamese dead and 50,000 American soldiers dead. This isn't about the number of dead. This is about the political will to maintain the occupation and the Taliban outlasted them. And the hubris, the the, the, uh, arrogance 
of these nations simply won't allow them to accept or even say the words that we got defeated uh, by this nation, mm -hmm. by these people who we vilified for the past few decades. And in all honesty, the people around Afghanistan are also looking at this. It's in their network, it's in their DNA, it's in their blood, it's in their history. They defeated the British. Uh, they defeated the British several times, not just once. They defeated the Soviets, mm. and now they have defeated uh, the united combined power of the most powerful nations in the world. And that's all to do with the political will to fight. The people have seen that. 35 million Afghans are not fleeing. 35 million Afghans are staying put um, and we're focusing on the few thousand who are leaving. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you. There's a lot of con. Um, they look at oftentimes uh, these Muslim populations with that level of arrogance or, or uh, this sort of condescending attitude. You know, I remember when um, within the first year or two of the Afghan conflict, Canada joined this coalition, right? So Canada was one of the initial people that joined. And uh, I was in university at that time, and I had a debate with uh, a, uh, a person who was representing the Canadian military. And uh, there was, it was being organized by a, uh, a professor of political science. And, um, you know, it came to the point where uh, the question became is that, you know, because the fact that there's still resistance, do the Afghan people really want your values? Like, are they are they uh, desperate and thirsty for your values? So, uh, one of the ways uh, the political professor he framed it, the pro professor of political science, was that he said, "Maybe you're right. Actually, you have a point. Uh, maybe they're not evolved enough." to want democracy so that you see how they reframed it like still through an arrogant lens that maybe you're correct they don't want they don't want our version of democracy and you know the societal structure that we have set up because you know what and they look at them in this condescending manner in this viewpoint that perhaps they're not ready for it you know they need to evolve you know for it and uh so it's still it seems like even with this massive move of okay we're retreating uh people fail to want to learn the lessons the human cost of life uh the the chaos that's now uh ensued into the region people still want to avoid any of these lessons and are we doomed now to be in this like cycle of violence like okay maybe they pull out now but uh, is this, if we don't re like learn the real lessons, are we doomed to repeat many of these mistakes again? Well, just two things. First of all, is that, um, you know, I I'm not opposed, opposed to every single aspect of democracy, but let's not forget that, uh, you know, Adolf mm. Hitler came to power through uh, the democratic elections uh, and, uh, you know, not to make a, an equivalence, but so did Donald Trump. Um, on the, the flip side, the uh, Islamic Party, uh, uh, Salvation Party in Algeria, Hamas in Palestine, um, the Muslim Brotherhood in, in Egypt have all come to power through the democratic process. Not a single one of those processes, or rather the, uh, uh, um, the results of those processes, have ever been accepted or welcomed by the West. So what that, does that tell you? That democracy um, only suits us when it suits our interests. So we don't actually believe in democracy, believe in our interests.
we see a completely different, uh, I think, paradigm with especially mass media, movies and television, the way that they lionize uh, the American imperial system, uh, as opposed to even the 70s. Like, you know, after the Vietnam War, near the tail end of the Vietnam War, it seemed like people were more willing to challenge the status quo and the authoritative structures. And now it just seems really conformist, you know, uh, just towing the line, helping like in, 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 in any movie you see, like a, a Marvel movie, a Transformers movie, uh, a movie that's just strictly about U.S. soldiers. They're just lionizing them. They can do no wrong. There's no war crimes. These people are chivalrous, uh, you know, warriors that go out to fight and liberate the world. Um, one thing I wanted to ask your opinion of why is this evacuation being taken place in Kabul airport and not something uh, that's not too far away? I think it's maybe like uh, 40 kilometers or 50 kilometers, 60 kilometers, something like that away, the Bagram air base that they had. Like, wouldn't it be much more secure? They could control it better for the evacuation. Why are they using Kabul airport and not, um, you know, the Bagram air, air base? Well, you know, interestingly, I, I was held as a captive by the Americans at Bagram Air Base for almost a year. So mm. I, I got to know Bagram very well during that period. And I, I saw two prisoners murdered by American soldiers, beaten to death. One of them uh, was beaten by the soldiers while and because he said Allah's name. Every time they struck him and, and kicked him on his leg, he shouted, Allah, Allah. And they found that amusing. So that night, several soldiers kicked him with a Thai boxing style kick to the top of his of his leg, which is known as a peroneal strike. Uh, and the, his name was Dilawar. He was a taxi driver. He turned out to be entirely innocent. Um, and the autopsy report said that had he survived, his leg would have required amputation and that it looked like his leg was run over by a truck. Uh, so I, as I said, I saw two people murdered there. It is a scene of the crime, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but why, why Bagram? Bagram is an airbase. It was the main military airbase. It was the center of operations for all uh, mm. military air flights. Um, the Americans in June, I think, actually left Bagram without telling the mm. Afghan the Afghan counterparts. They literally uh, evacuated and left in the middle of the night. Uh, just literally on the day that Kabul was captured by the Taliban, they also captured the Bagram Air Base, including the prison where I was held, and many hundreds of others or thousands of others who were abused and tortured. So this Bagram was never a place. It's not a place that is a central hub. It's an, that's an airport for, uh, it's a civilian airport. It's a, it was a military airport for military aircraft. Um, mm. So so the reason why Kabul Airport is is, is because it's no longer functioning as an airport for the military, uh, let alone the, the civilians. And so that's the short answer. Hmm. I think maybe po possibly it could also be, as you mentioned, uh, it is the scene of the crime. So they want to leave with these pictures of uh, soldiers carrying babies rather than perhaps uh, images now being superimposed of site of torture and, uh, you know, war crimes. So that could possibly also, I think maybe that has a very relevant reason because obviously being in Kabul airport, you can't control the scene as much as you could probably in Bagram. But part of this, I think they have to, it's about optics, right? They want to maintain these optics because when you mentioned to me, this person is being 
tortured and killed because he's saying Allah, Allah, you know, it reminds me of the statement in the Quran and, uh, you know, in the Sirah, are you killing a man because he says his Lord is Allah? And, you know, you know those are some powerful images. So I, I don't maybe there's an optics reason uh, behind this as well. Um, look, I mean, it's really important people understand this, right? The Americans weren't just imprisoning Taliban. They were imprisoning anybody that, say, a group came along and said, you know what? I think this guy is Taliban. The truth is, he's not Taliban. It's just I have a feud with him. I have an mm. Afghan Pashtun infamous 25-year feud with this family. And uh, I can get paid yes. in the process of handing these family members over. And the Americans came into a situation that they did not understand. Not the language, not the culture, not the customs, not the traditions, not the history. Um, I, I can say that from having spoken to American interrogators from the FBI, from the CIA, from military intelligence for over a period of year, I realized these guys are way out of their depth. What they're doing is they're bringing in dollars and bullets and trying to fight mm. and pay their way to winning this war. And you cannot do that mm. because with the money, you can perhaps rent people for a short while, but they're going to revert back to who mm. they are. And with the bullets, uh, you can kill a few, a few people, but their relatives, this is a feudal nation. This is, their relatives will come back mm. for vengeance. And that's what's happened. That, that's exactly what has happened. The, when they brought people in, I was shocked, I can tell you, brother, to see members mm. of the uh, supporters and, and uh, um, uh, tribe and uh, fighters of Hamid Karzai imprisoned with us in Bagram. People who had fought the Taliban mm. were imprisoned with us. And the Americans didn't know any better. They didn't know who they were bringing in. Mm. So the problem is that when they did, in, in, in Bagram, they, they abused us badly. They stripped us naked. They shaved our beards. They shaved our hair, made fun of the religion. They ripped the Quran, threw it into, into the toilet uh, and made fun of that. They, they swore, wrote swore, swear words in the Quran, spat at it, urinated on it. We saw these, with our, these things with our eyes. It's, it's documented. Um, they, they didn't give people enough water to wash with. So you, we had to make, I made tayammam, tayammam, dry ablution for one entire year because the water, did, I didn't have enough water to, to wash. It was only a bottle of water to drink a day. And so did the majority of the prisoners at that time. So these kinds of abuses and humiliation on, on one on top of the other was the breeding ground where they built. These people will go back to their subclans, their clans, to their tribes and tell them, this is America. This America does this. They don't know anything about America. They just know a little bit here and there. It's a, this great land of opportunity and democracy. But they got to see the evil dark side of the United States of America. And these are a people who were occupied by the Soviets. The Bagram detention facility that I was in was built by the Soviets first. You could still see the inscription and the writing on the walls in Russian. And I was with a prisoner, the young man, his name was Sharif. Sharif had, uh, um, mm. had, had uh, a father who was buried alive and killed by the Soviet forces in Bagram. And uh, he told me, my father's buried out, right outside here. And I remember the day when he said to the Americans, he said, my father was buried alive by the Soviet Union right here. Do you think his son is going to submit to the USA? And that was what, that's what the Americans were dealing with. And they didn't know, how do you deal with the people like this? Mm. Um, and what they should have done is cut a deal and left back then. 
rather than try to fight it out with that, as I said, imperial hubris. Hmm. How, how have you, I'm really interested to know, how have you coped with the post effects of the trauma and torture that you endured? By Allah's grace, um, I still say my, my experience was relatively calm, tame, compared to hmm. some of the people I know. I know people who've been in uh, Guantanamo 14 years, 15 years, 16 years. They've come home to see children that they don't even recognize, children who were babies the last time they saw them. Uh, I know prisoners who've lost the, their family members, fathers, mothers, children in some case. I know one brother whose son died while he was gone. Um, so, you know, as, as, as Muslims, when, what do we say when, when we see people afflicted by a particular disease? We say, praise be to Allah who saved me from their affliction. So I can say as somebody who knows to some degree that affliction, but he, I wasn't tested as badly as those who, who've gone through it. There are still 39 prisoners in, in Guantanamo, most of them held without charge or trial by the world's most powerful advocate of human rights. Uh, and and the the rule of law is the it's the greatest irony you can you can think of in the twenty first century. Mm. Do you like? Uh, do you have nightmares? Do you still like have flashbacks to those moments? Sometimes they they you know as as with anything they fade over time. Um, I mm. choose to engage with this role uh, and campaign. Uh, and that in itself sometimes is probably more heavy than my own experience of the past because that was just me. And I have forgiven many of the soldiers uh, that used to guard me. Some of them have come to my home and met with me, sat with me, eaten with me, mm. traveled with me, uh, and they are friends. And uh, that's, good for, that's good for the soul. Um, but I can't forgive for the abuses carried out against other people or the abuses still being carried out. And that part is, is much heavier. One of the heaviest things, of course, is, uh, as I told you, watching the murder of another prisoner, Dilawar, being punched and kicked by American soldiers. You, that's not, that didn't happen to me. That happened to, the, to Dilawar. It happened to his family. Hmm. Um, and that is the thing that gives you gives you nightmares. I've been studying the effects of trauma uh, for the last little while, and I've seen a few uh, effects on the victims of trauma. One uh, effect is where they uh, either uh, internalize or externalize some destructive habits. So an effect of trauma, mostly with women, they internalize it. So they become self-destructive. So they do a lot of destructive habits, you know, self-mutilation, things like that, uh, you know, uh, post-effective trauma. For men, it's more externalization. So they can become more violent, uh, you know, crime, uh, you know, assault, these types of things, you know, abuse with, uh, you know, their partners, etc. cetera. Uh, another effect is um, described actually by one of the, you know, top officers that for six years, he was head of the sex crimes unit uh, for um, sexual assault against children. And so one of the most, he said, the most sad things that he saw, one of the most heartbreaking things that he saw is that these people, these children who are abused, 
during that stage, they just became so dead inside and so traumatized, they just gave up. So it's like they had these dead eyes, like no will to fight, just conform to everything, right? Uh, and then a uh, very rare case, it's a really rare case to see somebody after enduring trauma to now uh, go out in the world and put out that positive energy and try to relieve people from similar trauma and try to make the world around them in a better place, like to kind of rise above that and, you know, turn that into something positive. Um, now, is, this question is, uh, is essentially a two-part thing. One is, have you seen that effect of trauma on uh, the effect? Uh, on the from the war on terror have you seen those effects of trauma on the people that endured it you know what i mean like so do you see now you know would, would isis be an example of those people who were traumatized or they were victimized or abused now becoming uh the abusers turning into the abusers themselves so they were now the victims now they're the abusers uh do you see like a manifestation of that uh and um do you see some muslims now just giving up and conforming you know what I mean? So just like almost like the spirit inside them is just dead and they've just conformed to the occupiers. And uh, thirdly, um, so the second question, the second part of the question is people like yourself, uh, people like I who I interviewed in the past, like Sheikh Abu Toba, who was imprisoned for two years, um, people like Omar Qadr, who uh, endured so much pain and trauma these you know people like yourselves and them i've seen they come out of it and they're not vengeful uh they uh they don't want to you know put that violence back out into the world but they want to create something positive and what you know what is the impulse what is the cause what helped you rise above uh those other uh you know consequences of being destructive of being like internally dead and so forth. So I just like your comments on that, uh, brother. Um, well, to answer the last part first, I, I was in prison in Bagram, actually, with uh, Omar Khadr for several months. Uh, when he was first brought into custody, he was a child. He was 14 years old. Uh, his body was weak, emaciated, gaunt. He looked like a walking skeleton. Um, and if that wasn't bad enough, he had two massive exit wounds from shots fired at him at point-blank range by American soldiers when they'd taken his almost lifeless body away. He'd lost sight in one eye, and they'd performed operations on him, and he looked like a, he looked like a walking um, autopsy uh, just there in front of me. And yet he never used to complain. You never used to hear a word of complaint from him. The soldiers, many of the soldiers uh, were sympathetic towards him, but others were deeply, because of the allegations against him, um, uh, unremorseful with him. And so he, he suffered some of the worst abuses as well. And yet I'd see him sometimes sitting on the rare occasion when we were allowed to recite the Quran because taking even reading the Quran was an offense uh, by which we would be taken to the front of the cell, our hands tied above our head to the top of the cage, and we'd be left there suspended with these handcuffs tying us uh, with a hood over our heads and left there for hours and hours, sometimes days on end. So that happened to him too, despite his injuries. But he, his voice reciting the Quran was the sweetest, the most tranquil, the most solemn, the, uh, the most dedicated voice that you could think of in that uh, torture center where we were held. So having seen him and, and seen his journey of his imprisonment in Guantanamo growing up 
in Guantanamo amongst men and then being sent to prison in the United in, in Canada and then eventually being released and the massive case around him the, the apology by President Trudeau for uh, the Canadian government's uh, involvement and complicity in his torture eventually he comes out a free man and he's a grown man when I saw him last he was a boy he, now he's a man and this man not only does he not seek vengeance not only, not only does he not break every single stereotype that's been presented about him by far right and right-wing media um he also appears as a human being that you that you are grateful that such a person could exist out of a hell of an experience like that and it's something for us as muslims generally and human beings to be proud of that a, a person after all that trauma connected to his past and his present um could do that uh, i look at people like him and people like many people i've known uh, who were in prison in guantanamo 14 15 16 17 years people who are still there now uh, and say that uh, when allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us that we see a people afflicted by a disease for example that we praise him in that we didn't have to go through what they went through uh i went i came back from guantanamo and i met my children including a 3 year old child i'd never seen before for the first time but one of my closest friends shakir amar he's from saudi arabia but he's a resident of the united kingdom he came back to see children who were adults 14 15 years after his imprisonment so there were babes in arms when he first last saw them and they were grown up so he doesn't know them those he's a stranger to them entirely and there are numerous cases of individuals who've gone through this sort of thing people who've lost relatives parents uh fathers mothers children i know i know uh prisoners who lost children while they were in prison and yet perhaps you know i maybe i'm biased on on their behalf or not but i don't see vengeance in their eyes i don't see vengeance in their actions in fact some of us have bought over united states soldiers who guarded us who were in part, in part of the role of keeping us away from those children who were born in our absence not just me myself i i've welcomed several into my own home we've toured the world together we've traveled the world together we've toured universities together um people have cried watching us um embrace and talk together because this is not something that um that that either side and especially the side of the of, of the united states of america wants anybody ever to see because this is a term they have this term called fraternization with the enemy but it's not because mm. these soldiers are are joining us in the voice to close down Guantanamo to end the war on terror and to say that what had been done to us was wrong that's what they're doing that's why they're with us and it was their humanity uh, that um, that wanted to see through some of these soldiers actually became muslims they took their shahada they said ashhadu an la ilaha illallah wa anna muhammadur rasulullah right there in Guantanamo uh, and some said it afterwards um so it's important that this this picture um for us is greater than our personal experience it's greater than that trauma we we did suffer trauma but there's a bigger story happening the, the world's on fire and we don't need to add more fuel to that fire we need to try to quell it somehow with the vo- voice of justice voice of reason and sometimes a bitter truth sometimes a bitter um a, a bitter liquid that's, that has to pour on that fire Uh, and that bitter truth sometimes is what people don't want to hear and it's something to you alluded to before which is uh, the united states of america and its allies can do no wrong 
They are the ultimate, mm. the epitome of the best of humanity. You know, just think about this, right? Just one little concept. I don't. I think I believe you have it in your in your constitution too, because it is essentially an extension of of Great Britain, uh, and the United States has it. Pakistan has it. Um, Austria, New Zealand, uh, Kenya, any place that was part of the British Empire has as within its constitution the concept of habeas corpus that derives from Magna Carta. Mm. Magna Carta is a British document mm. that was forced upon King John by the barons, and in it are three of the most important clauses. And one of those clauses is that to no man shall justice be delayed or denied except that they will be judged by a court of their peers. Omar Khadr, mm. myself, Shakir Amr, Muhammad Walid Salahi, and hundreds of others were held by a country that lords and uh, uh, boasts this part of its constitution to the rest of the world to say, we are more civilized than you because we don't treat our prisoners in this way. We do not arbitrarily detain people or torture them by the state. Mm. This was done to us by a country that has that in its constitution and done over a period of 20 years. And as prisoners in Guantanamo, I can tell you, we probably got it better than those prisoners who went through the black sites, the CIA black sites, where people mm. were waterboarded and people were electrocuted and tortured in ways that they wouldn't even do in Guantanamo. So that kind of tells you all of that trauma in the end. And, and here again, more icing on the cake. Many of the people who went through that trauma include Taliban ministers, today who are now Taliban ministers. The, the, the governor of Khost, uh, Mullah, um, uh, Muhammad Nabi Umari, uh, one of the guys who took over the Kabul president's uh, presidential suite. Uh, his name is Brother Rouhani. Um, several of the Taliban, five of the Taliban members who were released in 2014 as part of a prisoner swap, began the political office for the Islamic Emirate in Afghanistan. Now, some of these were former Taliban commanders on the battlefield. Um, and they'd gone through this torturous process and now sat with, alongside, met with a people like U.S. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and spoke to Donald Trump on the phone. So had their hatred, uh, um, desire for vengeance overtaken them, they would never have offered amnesty to anyone that had sided with, colluded with, helped um and welcomed the U.S. occupation that did that to them. As I said, we saw some abuses of the Qur'an itself taking place in, in, uh, in uh, Bagran and Kandahar. Yet they're prepared to forgive that because in the end, we know as Muslims, you can tear the Qur'an, you can rip it, you can throw it, you can urinate it, you can do, do on it, whatever you wish. But by, well, by Allah, the one who created us, you will never be able to change a single syllable in it and neither will you be able to remove it from my heart because that is where it was revealed first and foremost to the Prophet who was a Nabi al-Ummi, the unlettered Prophet who taught from his mouth to the hearts of men before it was ever written into a book. And that's the part that they couldn't break. And so I can tell you, for example, many brothers in Guantanamo memorized the Quran, knowing that the Americans were abusing it and uh, um, desecrating it. So what they would do is they say, hand it back, take back this Quran that you want to try to break me 
as a result of abusing this Quran, take it back. My brother over there, who's a hafid of the Quran, will teach me by his mouth the way that the Prophet mm-hmm. taught the companions. So it just, just it, it was this part of it. Uh, that they, the Iman rose and the tawakkal on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala became greater. Uh, and and that, that's my point about this. There are greater things taking place now um, than our own personal desire for vengeance. And, you know, I think this is an evidence of the power of Iman that if, say, the geopolitical situation was reversed, say, an Islamic empire had control and influence uh, over the world as the United States does, then many people could make the argument that people are just becoming Muslims because, you know, the Islamic empire has the greatest power and influence. But to me, this is actually an evidence. This is like a hujja of like the power of Iman that you could have somebody like, you know, Muhammad Uslahi, who has no power whatsoever, is in Guantanamo Bay, and his guard, Steve Wood, uh, not only uh, his heart is open to Islam, he becomes Muslim. You know what I mean? So you can make that argument that Islam is forced upon people or like, it's, you know, uh, it's because like there was this power and authority that came sweeping across the world because the counter evidence is happening in front of our eyes. You know, people are are accepting Islam. Uh, the people who were tortured are rising above that and, um, and, and aren't behaving in the same manner that they were treated. You know, I don't think there's, there's, there's uh, this level of precedent in our modern times. You know what I mean? Yeah, we have, you know, the examples of, in history of like the time from the time of Rasul Sallallahu like the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, when he came into Mecca. But in modern times, like this level of like you are you're back into and you are mingling with the same people, part of the same machine that brutalized you. This is unpre- to me, this is unprecedented in modern times. So, you know, you mentioned Steve Wood. I, I speak to him every, every, every now and then. Um, and uh, he's, mm. he's just a wonderful, amazing, sincere, deeply sincere brother, as are. Uh, many of these soldiers who became uh, Muslims, they, they, they've got a, they've got this thing, this ikhlas about them that I've not seen in, in many people. Um, and it's pro- pro- much of that to do with their experience. They were our, you know, that the hadith of the Prophet that, the, that a believer is the mirror of his brother. In a sense, mm. the, the American soldiers, good or bad, they were our mirrors. They saw, they were looking at us and we look right back at them. And sometimes we could see them, we could see ourselves in their eyes that we were that close. Mm. Um, and uh, so they saw us at our best and at our, and at our worst and to see them, uh, not only, uh, become Muslim, but to campaign against Guantanamo, to get themselves involved in investigations against the torture, to give evidence. Uh, these are huge steps. And this isn't because they're traitors to their country. It's because actually, uh, uh they, they believe in those values that were told, hold on to the rule of law, believe in the idea of justice, believe in the concept of of freedom. Uh, that's why some of these have, have spoken out against this. Um, and, uh, you know, this for me is a, is, uh, something that if you, if you compare it, as you said earlier on Muslims, um, though we're on the receiving end, uh, Islam is rising and it's rising in places we wouldn't expect. 
If you look at the Mongols who destroyed Islam literally over a period of 100 years, they'd sacked Baghdad and they reached literally you know, the doorstep of, of, of Arabia. Uh, there was, they were unstoppable. But within 100 years, they all became Muslims. All those who had settled in the Muslim land accepted Islam. It wasn't by their sword. It was by through different aspects of da'wah. And this is there. I, my family, claim to be descendants of those people who settled in, in the Indian subcontinent. Um, mm. Give you a little example. Uh, on Facebook, the sister messaged me a, a few uh, a few years ago. She said this, is, and she's got on on her avatar a picture of a hijab. She she mm. says, "Brother, were you in Guantanamo?" I said, "Yeah, I was." She said, "So was I," and I said, "But mm. sister, there were no female prisoners there." She said, "I wasn't a prisoner." I was a guard. I was one of your guards. I, I didn't guard you, but I was a a guard, an MP, a military policeman. And uh, yeah, uh, she said, "Please, I just wanted to tell you that I became a Muslim, and I became a Muslim mm. because because of my experience in Guantanamo, when I saw that a person who there that came who was weak was strengthened by his brother and the brotherhood that he found himself amongst." Um, I saw that as fascinating. I saw that me as a, as a as a U.S. soldier, who who when I had trauma in my life and difficulties, I turned to boys, I turned to drink, I turned to alcohol, and to drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I saw yes. you guys turn to the only thing that you had there, which was your faith. Uh, that actually sowed the seed of love for Islam in my heart. And when I went back to America. I researched it myself and I took my shahada. So mm. I, I told this story to many former Guantanamo prisoners who've been released who didn't know this. And when they did, uh, you know, one brother I told in Sudan, he had, he, was, he, had, he had tears in his eyes and he said, if my imprisonment for six years and abuse led just to that thing, then I swear by Allah it was worth it and I would do it again. Mm. Why aren't we raising these voices then when now there's this hawkish rhetoric of continuing uh, a military presence in Afghanistan because of feminism, right? So there's a lot of uh, rhetoric now, okay, women are going to lose their rights and because of Islam and Sharia is looked upon as a dirty word and something that's just going to come in there and bring this dark shadow for women's lives. Uh, why are these voices being uh, you know, elevated so that people can see, hey, listen, your vision or your viewpoint or what you've been exposed to Sharia may be starkly different than the reality. And uh, because, you know, people are essentially calling, okay, they're using maybe women's rights as an impetus for further military occupation or perhaps future drone strikes. Maybe they're physically uh, going to leave, but then in the future, uh, there may be some more military uh, engagements, right? Like, you know, I, I don't foresee them putting a halt to drone strikes, for example. So why aren't these voices being uh, elevated as they should be? Well, one thing you pointed out, uh, just recently now, a WikiLeaks report, uh, and you can, again, you can see why they see Julian Assange as, as an em- enemy, um, just came out that said the CIA actually said that we need to promote um, the idea and the concept of feminism uh, to destroy the resistance mm-hmm. in Afghanistan. And essentially to say yes. that this is all about women's rights. Um, but here, here, here's a statistic, right? Um, 85% of the women in Afghanistan, now as we speak, 85% of them are illiterate. 
This isn't during the rule of the Taliban. Taliban have been in power for less than 11 days. This is under the rule of direct American and uh, allied occupation with an installed government of their choice, of their pleasing. So the question must be asked, what did you do in 20 years that uh, deprived women from education? 85% of your population of women are illiterate. So what it tells you here is that just as we're hearing stories from the center, from essentially from Kabul, from the green zones, from the area that have been already so, uh, uh, so connected, so close, so um, uh, bamboozled, as it were, by the West. So it's easy for them to say that we are the sole voices of Afghanistan. Our voices and the voices of the diaspora community who left a long time ago, uh, we are the voices of the Afghan people. But you hear nothing of the majority of the Afghans who don't live in Kabul. Uh, and this is the problem, that of course there must be, and I'm the first to say this because I believe that the rights of women enshrined within Islam are too many. There are too many examples from the Sahabiyat, whether they were uh, nurses in the battlefield, where they were physically fighting to defend the Prophet where they were going on voyages, whether they were in charge mm. of uh, quality control at the market, whether they were uh, um, uh, quoting and narrating a hadith and teaching people, there is just too much evidence from Islam and mm. early Islam for them to be relegated in the way that some people in, in, in Afghanistan might do. But this requires education from an Islamic perspective and not a, a so-called Western eman emancipation that seeks to mm -hmm. remove the very nature uh, and the basis of Islam from society and have them beholden to the West as some kind of liberating force. It's not a liberating force. It's an occupying force. Here's an interesting mm -hmm. word I'll tell you. The word um, for foreigner, one of the words for foreigner in uh, Farsi or Dari, which is the, the, the uh, Afghan version of Farsi, is uh, Farangi. And Farangi mm. comes from the Arabic Farangi or Farangi, which itself comes from the word Frankish. And that is what they called crusaders back in those days. They, they, the word Salibin was used much later, the old people of the cross. They were simply known as the Franks because they were they were the crusaders. So the, the Farangi the, uh, of this day uh, the foreigners of this day are still seen in that light. That word is still used to describe the foreigner, the, particularly the Western mm. foreigner, which is an occupier. And so that type of education system or value system uh, will not necessarily agree with the systems that they have in this place. Um, and they are very protective of their cultures and, and traditions. Um, but they are receptive to Islam. And it is Islam that will emancipate women there before any of these Western ideologies. Now, I know you said you didn't see any women in Guantanamo, but did you see uh, any women uh, in other places where you were held being tortured or uh, imprisoned? Um, when I was held in Bagram, again, Bagram is such a center of so much uh, pain and uh, you know, mission creep of the United States of America. But I used to hear the sounds of a woman screaming in the cell next door uh, when I was interrogated in a particular period of time in Bagram. 
Uh, I was led at that point to believe it's my own wife being tortured. Um, uh, they used to bring pictures of my children uh, and wave them in front of me and say, what do you think happened? Where do you think your children are right now? Uh, mm -hmm. Insinuating, suggesting that my family are in custody. So it was. this was part of the physical and psychological torture. Alhamdulillah, I discovered that it's not my family, it's not my wife, but it was somebody's wife. It was somebody's daughter. It was somebody's uh, sister or mother. I have made investigations over periods of time and I'm still not 100% sure. Um, I know for a fact there was a woman there. Uh, the Red Cross have, uh, International Committee of the Red Cross have confirmed it. Uh, four prisoners who escaped from Bagram, fascinatingly in 2005, confirmed there's a woman there. She, the woman was Pakistani. She, they said she had lost her mind. They said she had children who had been separated from her. And they said that her number was prisoner 650. The Americans eventually confirmed that there was a prisoner there. Um, we have debated whether this was actually the Pakistani doctor, Afia Siddiqui, or not. It may or may not have been. I just, I don't know because the, some of the timings may not uh, fit. Uh, but there were definitely women held uh, in in uh, in Bagram, though not in Guantanamo. Mm. Uh, and since my investigative work and, the, and work in which I've given evidence at various war crimes tribunals around the world, um, I have come across survivors of Abu Ghraib who suffered terrible mass gang rape, uh, sexual violence from American soldiers. And I've given evidence alongside them at war crimes tribunals. Um, so there have been hundreds, if not thousands of women in custody, either in Afghanistan uh, or, or Iraq or both. To your knowledge, do you know if there are any women's rights organizations that have advocated for these women who are the victims of assault and torture and unjust imprisonment? No, there aren't. There's no, there's no such. Uh, in fact, this is one of the evidences of how the so-called feminist movement has been utilized by uh, in the war on terrorism uh, as a voice to attack Muslims. Because you would see, and this is a question I've asked repeatedly from many organizations who claim to fight for women's rights, is that where have you been in the cases of people like Afia Siddiqui, in the cases of people like Dr. Amina Masood Janjua in Pakistan, whose husband has been disappeared for 15 years, uh, in the cases of the multiple survivors of the torture, rape, gang rape by U.S. soldiers um, in Abu Ghraib and other places? Where have you been in the cases of multiple women whose husbands um, have been taken away without charge or trial and have been left destitute, um, unable to fend for themselves, unable to provide for themselves, left with little children. Where have these feminist organizations been on all of this? And the answer is that they are nowhere to be seen at all. They will never speak on their behalf because um, that agenda, except for maybe perhaps a handful, uh, has been taken on um, as a language of the war on terror. There are exceptions, I will say. There are exceptions from different groups human rights groups who have spoken on behalf of some of the women. Um, there are people like Victoria Britain here, who I know quite well in the UK, um, who've done plays about the effects of women affected by anti-terror legislation and the destruction of their lives that you don't often get to hear about. Uh, she's written a book called Shadow Lives about them. Um, but these are rarities and few and far between uh, case studies. For the most part, the entire feminist movement um, 
Mm. It says nothing about their uh, their sisters who've been targeted in this way. Why do you think uh, the uh, many of the Western uh, powers continue to utilize torture as a means of interrogation when it is proven that it doesn't actually work or it's not really effective? Um, I think because there because there's been no uh, meaningful accountability. So uh, mm. what what I mean by that is that uh, torture is a war crime in the concept of war. war it is a war crime. Um, and as an example, let's say waterboarding. Waterboarding is a technique that was used during the Spanish Inquisition by the Spanish uh, reconquistadors, as you want to call them, against the Muslims uh, and against Jews. And what they did is tie a person to a, a, a board, pour water on their mouths and noses and make them feel like they're drowning, even though that they were not submerged. This was seen to be as torture light. Um, this technique was used by many, by the Nazis, by Pinochet's government in Argentina, by the British in Northern Ireland, crucially by the Americans, uh, against the Americans, by the Japanese in World War II. Japanese soldiers mm. who waterboarded American GIs in World War II were prosecuted and convicted and executed for war crimes because they had waterboarded them. Uh, fast forward to 2001, 2002, Bush's war on terror. He says waterboarding is not a crime. Waterboarding is just enhanced interrogation techniques. Uh, Obama comes along and he says, oh, we tortured some folks, but you know what? We've learned our lessons. We'll move on. But he prosecutes nobody. That's a war crime that you didn't prosecute anybody for. So when Trump comes into power, what does he say? He said, I believe torture works. Waterboarding and more, I would do mm. a lot more than that. You just, if I, you or I were to do that, and somebody reported us to the police in a state where this is a crime, you would be charged and most likely convicted for supporting a crime because waterboarding is a crime in the concept of war. In the context of war, it's a war crime. So the reason why they continue to do this is because they haven't held a single person accountable. The CIA did a Senate, uh, sorry, the, the Senate, US Senate did a torture report in 2014 in which they identified and admitted torturing and i mean by the by the full definition of torture by the accepted definition of torture over 119 people not a single person was prosecuted so it tells you that they are above the law and if people had been gone to prison for torturing suspects they wouldn't be saying that torture somehow is successful that we can get it it's because they're not holding themselves accountable and are above the law do you think it's part of uh a planned psychological warfare as well like so one of the real reasons that they don't make public is that it's almost like to scare potential enemies uh or their current uh enemies that they're engaged in it's like you know for example the mafia if they want to send a message to a rival gang you know they'll do something so brutal it's not just the killing alone but it's to send a message you know what i mean so do, could you is that something that you think is uh, in the realm of possibility that it's actually part of their psychological warfare to sh send messages to people like this is what's going to happen when you oppose us. I think there may be some truth to that to some degree. Certainly the imagery of Guantanamo was about that in the early days when they sent images of people uh, dressed in orange jumpsuits, kneeling with, with face masks and ear defenders and blacked out goggles. Um, there was a message. That's what they said to me that the CIA and the, the FBI said that to me, if you don't cooperate with us, when they took me from Pakistan, we'll send you to Guantanamo. And they knew the images of Guantanamo now had shocked the world, that this is a, a, a zone that is outside of the law. Um, so yeah, that was part of it. But the other part of it is, is this, is that 
the, I don't, I'm not sure now who took what from whom, but they started the mm. process of outsourcing torture to places like Egypt, uh, Syria, uh, Libya, uh, Morocco, uh, and, and so forth. So countries that are notorious in the Arab and Muslim world for carrying out some of the worst type of torture techniques um, that, that have been known to modern man. So they knew that and they were working in cahoots with them. They'd say, okay, we won't do this torture technique. Well, you know, we can terrify this guy by saying, you know what, we're just going to send you to Syria or to Egypt. And they did. They did send, they sent individuals to Egypt, to Syria, to Libya. And Syria and Libya are, are countries that the United States didn't even have any diplomatic ties with at that time. So that tells you how they were prepared to work with uh, tyrannical regimes that were involved in torture. Um, so that kind of terror, as it were, they, 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 pushed it out everywhere. They even threatened many of us um, uh, um, to send us to Israel, that we're bringing Israelis over, we're going to send you to Israel, um, just as, as a humiliation and to, to, to try to terrify. But the problem is uh, some, a lot of the prisoners, or many of the prisoners, have come from places where torture is, unfortunately, in the Muslim world, it, it's a daily occurrence. So they were not, that wasn't the part that frightened them. That wasn't the part that worried them. Um, so to an extent, you can torture somebody's body. Um, but the Americans, I don't think we're going to do anything worse than what the Arab regimes were going to do. The only thing they did do is A, desecration of religion, and B, arbitrary detention. But in doing so, the Americans shot themselves in the foot because what they said is that we do not hold according to the rule of law and you cannot trust us to implement them. Uh, so um, my next question for you is... Um based on something that I observed uh, uh, during the memorial of this family that was uh, massacred, three generations of people massacred in London, Ontario. So you had this, you know, deranged person, murderous person. Um, if he was Muslim, he would have been called an extremist and a fundamentalist and a terrorist. But he ran over this family, killed them. So at that memorial, uh, one per person brought up a very, I think, important point that we shouldn't overlook and he said that some of the ways that we portray like he linked it to the issue that was happening at palestine at that time you know he said that you know if we dehumanize uh you know the palestinians who are fighting for their rights that's going to come back here you know in, in into canada and uh my question for you is that with this war on torture and the dehumanization of the scores of people that have been killed extrajudicially, you know, without any rhyme or reason. Do you think that's had an, uh, a, perhaps an unintended effect by, you know, some of the countries here in the West where now their own Muslim populations are being dehumanized and they're being targeted locally? Do you think this is one of the consequences of the war on terror? Yeah, look, I mean, one of the things that you can see a part of the dehumanization process is that all these countries that we're in, where Muslims are minorities, have always had a far-right element. They've always existed. Even when Muslims weren't the target of the far-right. I grew up in, in Birmingham in the UK, when Muslims weren't the target, it was just dark people, black people, uh, and they didn't care about Islam. They didn't even know what Islam was. Um, but that has now slowly changed. The language of all these far-right groups has gained more traction because they have all said, and you can hear this from the from the left of the argument in some places, the far left especially, and the far right. And sometimes they come together in their hatred of Islam. So as an example, mm. you can see that 
Brenton Tarrant, I think that's an example. The guy who walks into the mosque in um, in Christchurch in New Zealand, he goes in shooting all of these men, women, and children in, in prayer. And he does so listening to songs that celebrate in, in the Serbian language uh, the war criminal Radovan Karadic, who is responsible for the mm. killing of uh, thousands of Muslims. Now, he didn't see those Muslims as white per se. Mm. The moment those Muslims say, Ashhadu an la ilaha when Muhammad Rasulullah, they become black in his eye, in his eye, though they are white, Caucasian, Slavic, blonde haired, blue eyed guys to him. In the same mm. way, he, so this guy is far right. Then what he does in his manifesto, he praises the communist communist government of China for its treatment mm. of the Uyghurs of East Turkestan and how they have been vilified and how they have been placed in the concentration camps and have been forced to renounce their religion. So here's this guy from the far right, ideologically opposed to the far left communists, agreeing with and praising their ideology. So here's a very dangerous thing in which the war on terrorism and its language has been adopted by people Mm. Uh, who believe in capitalism, who believe in communism, who believe in extremist Hinduism, who believe in Arab nationalism, who believe in uh, um, Burmese nationalism. It's across the board. Every despot, abuser, torturer, tyrant has picked up this language to demonize Muslims um, mm. in a way that it hasn't happened before. So the rise of this Islamophobia, you can see this at a top level. When governments are issuing and passing laws as they are in the UK, almost every year a new law that in de facto terms addresses and applies only to Muslims, you can see that this Islamophobia is no longer about the guy on the street, you know, may Allah grant Jannah to those who got killed um, in London, in, in Canada. But this is far more sinister. It's at state level. In Britain, for example, mm. we have a law called Schedule 7 of the Terrorism Act 2000, uh, where people can be stopped at the airports uh, randomly by the police. And those people are not suspected of having committed a crime. They must submit DNA, fingerprints, photographs, strip search, and all uh, give the passwords to their digital de devices. If they refuse to do so, they can be convicted as terrorists. They're not even stopped uh, uh, for, for a, a suspicion of a crime. 88% of people stopped at one airport, according to a Cambridge University study, found that they were Muslims. We are 4% mm. of the entire population. So that tells you the Islamophobia is at state level. It's n And that mm. trickles down to the guy on the street who says, you Muslim terrorists, go back home. It, th the atmosphere has been created by the politicians and the media. Mm. Yes, definitely we're seeing the institutionalized effects of that. Uh, now, my, my last question, because, and I appreciate the time and patience you've spent with us, Jazamakhir Kathiran, for uh, for everything. Uh, and, and uh, you know, like I said, this whole process hasn't been the most smoothest, but Jazamakhir for that, uh, for your patience. M my last question is in regards to an advice for our Muslim community, because I see oftentimes you're really manipulated. And it's not just, you know, uh, now, it's been happening for. For years, like, you know, studying World War One, we know that, for example, uh, Germans, German officials were trying to stoke pan-Islamic jihad, not for Muslim liber liberation, but just to oppose, to have, you know, uh, a group of people who would oppose, you know, the British Empire and, and so forth. And then we saw that, obviously, in Afghanistan, 
where uh, you know they have the full support of United States and Western powers, and then only afterwards to be demonized. You know what I mean? So how do we, uh, you know, essentially uh, reclaim our independence and avoid being manipulated? Whether we're living as minorities, because oftentimes. I, I see this amongst our own community. They look at people who look at them sympathetically as their saviors, but they have their also their own agenda. And sometimes we lack the confidence to develop our own uh, agenda or our own advocacy for our own communities. So what advice would you have uh, in light of that? I think it's very important for us to build up uh, our own institutions, our own leaders, our own uh, uh individuals who stand up and speak for the tr speak the truth and are not saying it on the basis of trying to solely build an alliance alliances are important they, it's something the prophet practiced himself um and it's important for us as, especially as as minorities to understand this that you you don't harm and you do not do harm uh, but at the same in the same way you must come to the defense of the oppressed especially from amongst the Muslim community. And if you don't, if you acquiesce, if you give up, if you capitulate, then future generations will look at you and they won't even see you. You won't exist. You won't matter. Nobody remembers those who capitulated, not in any history of any peoples. Um, mm. History is recognized by those who stood up uh, for principles, suffered for those principles, were imprisoned for those principles, and sometimes had to die for those principles. Um, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is essentially telling us that we're going to test you with something of, of, of uh, hunger and fear and loss of wealth and possessions. And then he says, that give tidings to those who are patient. So those people, you know, we say when somebody dies, it's as if that is what you say when somebody dies. But we have another dua about that. And that's, that's totally separate to this. This verse is about the tests that you're going to face. Um, and those tests will by necessity means that you will lose. Muslims have to be prepared, like in the path of all the prophets, all the companions, all whoever stood for this faith, that you will be tested and you'll be tested by that which you love. That is what our religion has always taught us. And if we are prepared for that, if we are connected more to the akhirah, well, akhirah to khayrun wa baqa is really in our hearts, we won't be so worried about facing those tests. The problem is that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, said to us that uh, you will love this dunya, dunya wa that your love of this life and your fear of the hereafter is what's making you cling to the dunya and everything's around us. And that's why we have lost what the first generations had uh, in abundance. And that was a conviction that... Um, if you work for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you cannot lose. And we need to bring that back into our lives. Once again, I appreciate your time. You know, uh, brother, I we only touched the tip of the iceberg of things I wanted to talk to you about. So uh, inshallah, I hope um, you can give us some more time in the future. And uh, there's so many different issues that I would love your insight because like I said, I think you're 
so specially suited uh, to give us insight on so many different things. Uh, you know, being uh, your younger years, you know, being raised here in the West, uh, having good experience in the Islamic world too. And then also this extraordinary times that we're living in being like an intimate observer of, uh, you know, some of uh, what's happened. And I think it's a more authentic, you know, experience that we need to bring out to people. And when people uh, hear that story, then I, I don't see how you could have hate in your heart for somebody who is trying to speak to you in such a sincere uh, way in no, no ambiguous terms. So clearly, uh, you know, how can you reject and hate somebody like that? Uh, so uh, I, I truly appreciate um, the time and energy, and I hope this is the beginning of some, inshallah, beneficial conversations and um, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala preserve you and your family and uh, give you thabat, give you steadfastness and all these uh, positive works, all these good works that you're involved in. Barakallah feek akhi and may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect you and all your listeners, all your viewers uh, and bless you with all that is good and protect you from all that isn't uh, and I pray too that inshallah we continue our conversation uh, in the near future. Uh, and to all our viewers, remember, live by the haq, we die by the haq, and just when you think life is stuck, tune in to life haq. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa On behalf of the life haq team, thank you for watching this video. And for more clips and beneficial content, please subscribe to the life haq channel, your number one source for personal Islamic development. Do I feel that the New York police are providing enough protection or do I have to have protection of my own? I look for protection from Allah.